I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, I chose this because of the title of Laura's book, uh, because of the idea of freedom, which I think is something we both talk about a bit in in our, in our books, Freedom and Movement, and uh, the ways that women can um, inhabit these, these these spaces or these opportunities. Um, so this is, this is my Paris chapter. My book follows a woman around Europe as she travels in order to kind of rid herself of the of, of a um, unsuccessful relationship, which took place mostly in the non-space of uh, online. Um, so this is, this is Paris in Belleville. Beyond the Maison, in a dip behind the Parc de Belleville, I walk down the steps into the Place Henri Krasicki, named the resistance fighter and trade unionist, where a woman is selling the communist paper L'Humanité. Others are in polite discussion. On a wall in the neighboring Rue Le Vert, graffiti, Peuple de France, prends ta liberté. People of France, claim your freedom. Liberty, freedom. To walk where we choose, to choose where we walk. Freedom to cross the hexagonal crossroads in the Place Henri Krasuki, which, like most Parisian junctions, offers six, not four, alternatives. The Rue Le Vert, Rue de la Mar, Rue de Cascade, Rue de Courant, Rue de la Mer again, continuing on the other side, the Rue des Envierges, or freedom not to cross, to stay. But freedom is movement, isn't it? L'air n'a pas de frontières. Online, neither. Isn't she lovely? Is that you? Your voice, which is now part of my head. You said before you went away, I'll see you in Prague if we're still writing. But we're not writing, so how can you be talking to me? Isn't she lovely? Do you mean humanity, Venda? Every Parisian is a street walker. In a city of tiny flats, women dress to be seen from the pavement. The humanity, humanity vendor walks into the Place Henri Krasicki, like me, from the Rue des Envierges, the street of the bevergent. Alternative meanings, the street of the becleaned, be emptied, be unsullied. The clothes she wears are street clothes, not a Chanel jacket. I never saw a Parisian in Chanel jacket. But in Belleville, jeans, a black perfecto, unzipped, a floral scarf. Isn't she lovely? Of course she is. I see it now. I saw women for the first time through your eyes, the way men see them. A flash of leg, a curve of breast, never the full woman. You saw them from the side, from behind, always walking away, 
a flick of scarf, a toss of hair, a glance, you saw the finish, the edge, as it drops boundaryless into nothing from the corner of your eye. In Paris, where the crossroads are hexagonal, not four prongs, there are more corners, and you had an eye for them. Isn't she lovely? Even if she's not, some part of her always is. Choose, and you'll never be satisfied. The one with the legs won't be the one with the breasts, and so on, and etc. Isn't she lovely? How can I tell? Lost in a forest of a hundred breasts, a hundred legs. Isn't she lovely? Of course she are. They're crossing the road in front of me, the Parisians, in the Place Henri Kazuki. They choose their directions at the crossroads. It's an illusion. Their choice of streets is no wider than mine. They cannot choose to be older, less lovely, just as I cannot choose to be younger or more so. They may have more time, but they have no more control over their time than I do. They are at a point along the line. They can choose only to move forwards. They cannot choose to skip time, though they presumably have more of it to come. They cannot choose not to move or go back. For each pedestrian, there is no more than one way out. I cross the road to the Rouen Point of the Place Henri Krizuki. Thanks, Joanna. Uh, and so, Lara, if you'd like to read from the first extract. So I'm going to read the opening of the book, which is called Les Lessons from Lessing. There were too many weddings that summer. White weddings, gold weddings, weddings in village churches, on beaches, at woolen mills. Collectively, they seemed to go on for too long and to involve too much effort. Whether it was the effort of the congregation to reach these much-loved remote places, or the effort of the bride and groom to coordinate flowers, music, seating plans, personalised vows, homemade confetti, and take-home marmalade. At all of them, I chastised myself for my own mean-spiritedness and hypocrisy. I, too, am married and once devoted a summer to it but determined that at some point when not at a wedding, I would work out why I minded it all so much. I came closer to understanding my own truculence when I attended the wedding of a school friend while halfway through reading The Golden Notebook, Doris Lessing's 1962 exploration of the artistic and sexual life of a free woman. Lessing's voice is powerful and it had taken hold of me 50 years later, to the extent that it seemed to muffle the voices around me. I could hear her sentences in my ears as I sat below a hundred metres of tasteful liberty print bunting that the bride, her sister and their mother, three intelligent and expensively educated women, had sewn by hand. Troubled by the mental picture of a needle threaded, pulled through and along the fabric, back through, in again, back through, ad infinitum, I heard Lessing's central character Anna Wolfe's pronouncement. I am interested only in stretching myself, in living as fully as I can. For Anna, living fully means living freely. She has been married and is prepared to marry again, but she's aware of the fragility of any relationship because love experienced authentically is dangerous. And she remains uncertain whether she's willing to allow a sexual relationship to define her place in the world. Thinking about her, I realized that my main objection to these weddings wasn't a feminist one. I was certainly troubled by the ease with which we perpetuated the symbolism of the pallidly virginal bride being handed from one man to another, and perturbed in this case that it was the women who'd done all that sewing. But it wouldn't have been much better if the groom had taken up needlework as well. What I minded more strongly was the apparent assumption that this remained the only way to live. Weddings celebrated on this scale seemed to take for granted a happy ever after of decade after decade of safely monogamous marriage, 
with appropriate numbers of children born at appropriate intervals along the way. They ushered in a world where work was a means to the ultimate end of enjoyable family life, where love was the love you at the end of a phone call. I felt uncomfortable partly because it seemed to co-opt everyone in the room into this vision, and this made me claustrophobic, needing urgently to insist on my right to live fully, without quite knowing what I would want that to entail. Sitting under that tasteful bunting, I was talking to two school friends at a table that had been emptied as people headed towards the dance floor. I asked them what they felt about this industrious celebration of love, and was relieved to find that they were sceptical too, though one of them was preparing to get married a few months later, and was even, occasioning more irritation on my part, planning to change her name. We were all aware that this was not what we'd had in mind when we read Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence in adolescence, aware that we'd once thought of love as something freer and more radical. We remembered an evening during the summer of our A-levels when the three of us had lain talking and drinking on the grass of one of their gardens and, as the sky darkened, each had confessed, to the surprise of the others, that we were still virgins. We'd all had boyfriends, but we'd assumed an old-fashioned coyness in delaying the moment of deflowerment, partly out of fear and partly out of a reluctance to relinquish the independence of self-sufficiency, though I'm not sure we would have defined it so coolly at the time. Reared at a school where we'd been taught that girls could do everything and had no need of boys, we felt that there'd be an element of self-betrayal involved in entering a state where we became dependent on the desire, approval and companionship of men. As the band began to play in the adjoining room, I told them about the Golden Notebook, about Anna Wolfe, who, like us, was in her mid-thirties, and her struggle to live as honestly as possible. I described what I saw as Lessing's central dilemma, and how it had helped me to see in retrospect what it was that we had feared would be lost once we had succumbed to a life of sex with men. Anna wants to be free, believes that she cannot thrive as a writer or a woman if she does not exist independently of her lovers. But she cannot be happy without the love of a man, and she cannot love fully unless she relinquishes control enough to lose herself in him. Sexually, she wants to be created by his desire, to have the pleasurably overwhelming feeling of experiencing his body as hers. Emotionally, she wants both to depend on him and to be needed by him, so that together they can feel the vulnerability required to be transfigured by love. She's aware that the price for this transfiguration could be a loss of freedom. Indeed, she's prepared to accept that it might lead her to marry for a second time. Now, thinking about Anna as we rose to join the dancing, I thought that there might not be anything wrong with her acceptance of this, but that, it was, it, but that it was possible still to remember that it was a high price to pay even while paying it, and that this required an ambivalence that seemed incompatible with all those metres of bunting. Thank you. Let's start with the big stuff. It seems to me that we've already started talking about freedom. I mean, the, the, the word liberty is in the title of um, tonight's event, and it seems that we're already talking about, about the ways that for women, um, love and sex and desire pose a kind of um, risk or, or, or a limit to that freedom. But when thinking about freedom, I have to confess I'm really not sure what the word means. I'm not sure what we mean when we talk about freedom or about liberty. Um, but I think that's okay because I think, um, I think these books aren't sure either. It seems to me that in these books, both of you move through various kind of unstable definitions and experiments and enactments of freedom. And so I wonder if we can start by, by talking about some of those. 
As much, certainly as much as the word freedom, the word that my book examines is the word love, and, mm. and, and in a very linguistic way, it's, it's very interested in the range of meanings that it can have, yeah. and the range of meanings that it can't have, and the ways that it is put to use. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think that's probably the, the central, central role. I, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure whether the character in my book, which mm. you know, admittedly is autofictional and is very related to these. these started work as essays, so it's very related to some experiences I have had, um, but is a novel. Um, it is, yeah, the, the, the word freedom is less often mentioned, which is interesting. Mm. Um, she does do a lot of free things. Um, she does quite happily. I was, I was actually doing an interview about this book with Kay Mitchell in Manchester a couple of weeks ago, and she, she said, is it specifically about a woman who has been married, because the woman in this book has been married, and who is not looking for that kind of relationship again, who is like Anna Wolfe, but is not, is looking for a kind of love, mm. and has decided that she is not going to get this through marriage, though she is willing to surrender to other kinds of bonds, mm. and indeed has, and mm. uh, the problem being that digitally these bonds cannot be broken so easily as they could before the internet age. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the word freedom. I mean, uh, part of what drew me to it um, was that Lessing used it so often, and, and I felt like she might know what it meant. Um, but I gradually felt like she mm. um, that it eluded her grasp as soon as she sort of started getting towards a place where she might feel free. And certainly, I felt that. I mean, that opening passage which I read started from I think quite a it, it kind of came from quite a na naive moment in a way in which I thought that I would try out freedom and see what it felt like. Um, but certainly, I found that. That the, mean, that the word sort of lost meaning except as a kind of transitional state towards something freer. It, mm. it felt like you were never going to sort of attain freedom except in the process of becoming, maybe. Um, and we could talk, I think, if we talk about sort of writing itself later, it, it felt to me like if anything made her feel free and, and I suppose made me feel free, it was in, mm. it was in writing, which is, is also a, a sort of transitional state. I, I mean, I, reading your book, I did feel like... Um, what was being sought by the character was quite similar in a way to, to what I was defining as freedom mm -hmm. yes. through Lessing. Yeah. Um, but I can also see why, if you didn't start with a word, it's kind of not yeah. a word that you necessarily end up with, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting that it didn't, it didn't yeah. use the word. I mean, I think it's become quite a problematic word for our generation as well, and that's part of what what I liked about Lessing was that it wasn't, was that she used it with such mm -hmm. abandon about communism, about things that we really couldn't, that politics and the way that freedom has been co-opted by every side in every, mm. um, in every ideological uh, conflict has, has made it a much harder word to use politically and then it becomes harder to, to sort of reclaim it personally as well. And I suppose part of what I was interested in was whether it is possible to reclaim it because it still does mean something instinctive to us. Well, certainly the character in my book has a lot of personal freedom if she chooses to take it, but then she has to, you know, like, like Anna, she has to, to um, sacrifice certain emotional um, props yeah. in order mm. to do that, and, you know, that, that doesn't seem to have changed that much. No. No, because I, mean, I think another thing that, that perhaps um, unites both of your books is, is that that freedom or a version of it, however ambivalent or partial mm -hmm. we feel about it, um, seems to come at the, the, a, a kind of cost in both cases. Mm -hmm. And you know the, the props that you discard. And I, I think um, loneliness 
is, is one of yeah. the things of, of both of you are, are writing about states of loneliness and, and solitude and, 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 feeling, and, and feeling like a square peg, right? Yes. Well, the narrator sees a lot of couples and a lot of women in the book. So she's always looking in, in throughout the book and she's always looking for clues as to how to be. Mm. And mostly she doesn't find anything that she, that either in couples or in, occasionally in single women, but um, mm. often, most often when she sees couples as she's travelling around, she doesn't see a model which she would like to Im imitate in any way. I really liked your descriptions of couples. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah. The shared snacks and yes. the rucksack. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which could be lovely. I mean, you know, the, the, the narrator is obviously talking from a kind of slightly yeah. jaded yeah. position. But, um, but, but yeah, she, she certainly doesn't see a future in that that she, she would like to partake of. But I think what's, what's good about these scenes and, and certainly what I found in Essing and sort of experienced myself is that it's that neither side ever works and it's kind of it's tackling mm -hmm. that ambivalence that um, you never quite want to give up on on the idea of the snacks with a whole different in, within a whole different relationship that might have, that mm. might make them possible because you don't quite give up on it um, you know I think you what do you say at the end um, you, I think you describe it as the the tyranny of the dominant notion of family life and I think mm -hmm. there's there's a there's a kind of um, I think it's fair to say like a, a, a a, a really profoundly critical view of these kind of conventional ways of doing mm. coupling and relationships and family life. But um, towards the end in, in Suffolk, Larry, you seem to find another way of doing things that still involves family and involves relationships, but involves remaking them in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think often it's the word, I find the word family a really hard word. Mm. Um, and, but a lot of what it entails is, you know, is, is is about loving your children and spending mm. time with them. It's a sort of fairly straightforward thing to do, and and so <laughs> much like the word couple, I suppose. I mean, yes, and husband, I completely, I love this that, that kind of you know that yeah. she, she, she always she never wanted to use it because yeah. it sort of snaps back like a rubber band. Yeah. Yeah. So it always feels a strange thing. Also, I write about naming in general. I'm, I'm very interested in Denise Riley, um, her, who lives and 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 professor at, at Norwich, um, who has. Um, I think I included a little quote from her about the violence of naming, yeah. the violence of defining, and the limitations that this puts on. And it's very difficult when, of course, you're writing a book in words to say that there is something very violent about defining something, about yeah. putting a name, giving a name to something that puts boundaries to it. But that becomes, in a way, the challenge. Like the, the challenge of writing in a, in a framework mm. that sets that up is to somehow keep the ambivalence going to the mm -hmm. extent that you never quite define either position. That I mean. That itself, I suppose, is a form of freedom not to de quite decide. Yes, yes, that tension and the betweenness. I, I talk a lot about betweenness as well in, in various ways and in, in maths as well. Um, and also, it's to do with a train journey or mostly train, you know, occasionally other forms of transport. So there's this kind of feeling of never settling. Mm. Um, mm. And talking of never settling, segue, um, I, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, we've, we've touched upon these things about, about being in between and, and, and kind of ambiguity and not naming something. And both your books follow that, follow that formally, in a sense, because they're both really, really properly hybrid works. I mean, Lara, yours is, is kind of, kind of a, a work of, of scholarship, a scholarly work, but it's also a work of literary criticism, but it's also memoir and biography as well. And, and Joanna, you've talked about how yours is, is a kind of, you know, touches on the memoir in a way, but is very definitely a novel, but it's also, um, it's also essayistic in lots of ways yes. and is a kind of disquisition on the digital, but also mm -hmm. like Europe and, and all kinds of other things. And I wondered whether, um, how those, those uh, 
the kind of hybrid forms had come about, whether they'd happened quite naturally, whether that was what you planned, whether that had come out of the, the content or the experience of writing. Well, I certainly, in writing what can be called a novel, I have a real beef with the idea that in novels, people aren't, aren't, aren't allowed to discuss things directly. It happens very rarely in novels. I mean, sometimes characters in novels, you know, discuss what they're reading or ideas that they've read about, but it often seems quite a difficult thing to set in motion. Mm. Whereas what I've done here, what I did in my book Hotel as well, is I've found cunning ways to just to, to make references to ideas that I'm discussing in the book, but I don't want to, because it's fiction, I, I don't want to break the spell of um, reading about a character and not um, not deviating from that. So I, I decided I'd, I'd just put, in, in the hotel I use some kind of screenplay-like devices, mm. but I decided here I'd just put um, little quotes in at the side. And I know that when we're all reading, especially when we're reading things like newspapers or articles online, we're all looking at two things at the same time, and our ability to read things is, is much wider than is often uh, imagined on the page. You know, we're often looking halfway down an article and looking at the headline, looking at the subheader, also halfway down paragraph two. Um, and so we're getting a, a very impressionistic um, reading of books. I'm interested in how you know how people read with their eyes mm. um, and how things are arranged on the page. So I think people are completely capable of like reading the story and thinking, oh, there's a little bit over there and it's talking about something else, but it somehow works with the idea. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the 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 whole mixing the personal, the critical, and the creative did seem quite natural to me, and it's mm. how I've always written. But um, I've had to find kinds of validation which luckily are becoming more and more common yeah. Um, yeah. as to how to, to as, as to, to for, for doing this. Yeah, did it feel natural to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, so the previous books, The Love Time Bonds and The Visit Taste of Victory were both also hybrid forms of a quite different kind where they kind of were history told in the structure of a novel where you kind of interweave five characters mm. and so I'd kind of got to that point where the techniques of, using the techniques of fiction in a non-fiction book felt natural. Yeah. But... Um, I hadn't written in the first person before, and this began with my writing biographically about Lessing, um, or knowing that I wanted to do that in some way, but also with this very... I was interested, I suppose, in the kind of very adolescence kind of reading I describe in the, mm. in the passage I read, where it felt like I was an academic who had spent years t telling my students, of course, you mustn't just read the author into the characters and you mustn't think <laughs> that you know them and this is all terrible stuff to do. Um, but that was exactly how I was reading. And that was, I think, why most academics have gone into it in the first place, was because of that experience of adolescent absorption. Mm. Um, and so I was sort of interested in doing that as an adult and seeing what it was like to allow yourself uh, a kind of obsessive subjectivity mm. as a reader. Um, and I felt like that was informing my reading of Lessing so much that it would sort of be dishonest to talk about her abandoning her children and what I thought about that without also thinking about myself as a mother because you inevitably are doing that. Mm. Um, and so I think I fiddled with form for a while but then came up with a structure where I kind of investigate nine forms of freedom mm. with the, the arc of her life and the arc of two years in my life, um, which... Yeah, which which kind of so it felt like that I ended up with that form, and then it felt like the only form I think is right. so often that seems to. Yeah, just before we um, hear your the second extract you're going to read, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, 
how it felt to kind of get so close to Lessing, especially, you know, given what you've said about kind of academic distance and, you know, not, not reading in that way. Um, because you, the, the, the extracts you're going to read for, for, for us um, takes place, uh, it's a, from the chapter about writing, and I believe it takes place in the setting of um, uh, Doris Lessing's cottage on, uh, in Dartmoor. But that's not the only place that you go in search of Lessing. As the book goes on, you uh, go to Zimbabwe to the site of her old house. You go and visit her ex-boyfriend in LA. And how was it to get so close to, to an author like that? Um, I've sort of always done that. I mean, even when writing biographically without myself in it, I've, I've hmm. always gone to the, those places. I've, it's sort of, um, I think with writers who describe either houses in which they've lived or, or landscapes, that seeing that for yourself really matters. So walking around the ruins of Bowen's Court, for example, for Elizabeth Bowen, or mm. going to Ackill uh, for Graham Greene. Um, so it felt sort of inevitable, but it's, but there is, I can see, a level of obsessiveness in in going to the bush in Zimbabwe and sort of finding mm. the farm in which she'd, she'd grown up. And suddenly people there thought it was very, I mean, the, the whole thing felt ill-fated and like I would never find it. And finding it then becomes its own. I think also, I mean, it kind of relates to the question of the book that sets itself up as a quest, um, which I think both of our books do, and the way that it starts to seem crazier and crazier as a quest, and at any point you could just <laughs> abandon the whole thing. And the, I think both of us include people who, who are kind of saying along the way, well, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And um, the, it's, it, I think it, gets, it got to the point for me where I was obsessed with sort of these arbitrary tasks I set myself as oh, much yeah. as I with like arbitrariness. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, the, 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 the task that the narrator sets herself in the first chapter is entirely arbitrary and indeed aleatory and chance-based. She's willfully encountering a degree of chance, which mm. is something I'm very interested in. And there's, there's a lot of work around Andre Breton's Nadia and surrealist ideas. Um, at the same time, with the full knowledge that Breton's Nadia is a, a, a deeply misogynistic text, and mm. that this is something she, the narrator is, is, is working against at the same time as she's working with. Mm. Right. Perhaps we'll talk about that more in a, in a second. Um, would you like to read your okay. second yep. extract? That'd be great. So this is from the chapter called Writing, and I'm jumping about a bit just to try and sort of get an arc going. Um, and it's in Devon. Arriving, I was struck at once by my usual feeling of release on finding myself in a place where I can gaze out at grass and sky without experiencing much habitation in the way, and by a sense that I'd come to a place where Lessing was easily accessible. If, as I had said to Clancy, I was looking for Lessing, then it seemed easier to locate her here than anywhere else I had been. Walking with urgent speed out onto the moors, minutes after arriving at the bed and breakfast, I felt confident in the knowledge that she had walked along this path, looking hungrily out onto this view, and felt the world receding behind her as I did now. This was a much more contented incarnation of Lessing than I'd encountered either in London or California, happy to be somewhere so open and beautiful, no longer preoccupied by her own or her lover's neuroses. At Tordown House, Lessing was writing Landlocked and the Four-Gated City, the final Martha Quest novels. If writing The Golden Notebook had changed her, enabling her to write away communism and exercise Jack and Clancy, she could now return to the more straightforwardly autobiographical heroine she had created in Martha all those years ago. Only this time, as she celebrated embodied love in Landlocked and investigated the freedom of madness in the four-gated city, she was experimenting with form more pleasurably than she had in the early Martha novels. When Martha undergoes her days without food or sleep and overcomes her self-hater persona, 
She's undergoing a creative transformation in which she learns who she is when free. Though Martha never writes, this is effectively the birth of the writer. And this is how Lessing described her own experiment with drugs in her autobiography. In Lessing's case, the persona escaped was not the self-hater, but the hostess. Again, this was the public self that was open to anxious inspection. Lessing recalled how the hostess kept performing, bright, helpful, attentive, receptive to what is expected, while the inner self had the more important private experience of frightened revelation. This inner self was the observer and was explicitly figured as a writer. This is a quote. They call it loneliness, that here is this place unshareable with anyone at all, ever, but it is all we have to fall back on. Me, I, this feeling of me, the observer, never to be touched, tasted, felt, seen by anyone else. Me, I, this feeling of me. This is the writer beyond social interaction, beyond duty, beyond sex, not even to be touched or tasted, exposed to loneliness as the necessary price of freedom. It's the persona that Martha is liberating in her borrowed room and that Lessing was liberating in Tore Down House. What does it feel like to reveal this person to the world? Why had it started to feel so necessary to me to do so? The answer that I had failed to give the psychoanalyst when he asked why I was exposing myself in print was that liberating this observer self and subduing the hostess had become a necessary component of my freedom. My restlessness that autumn had been in part an irritation with my own social persona, with the side of me who wanted to please, charm and reassure a proportion of the people I met by subtly metamorphosing into the woman they wished me to be. I had spent my twenties learning to overcome shyness by developing a confident social self. It didn't always work even when I wanted it to, and now I wanted it to work even less than I ever had. At the picnic in the summer where my husband had been cross because I was silent, he was coming up against my difficulty in assuming a hostess persona in this situation. He was also coming up against my sense that silence seemed increasingly to be the more honest response to social uncertainty. Breaking down my social self had become a necessary continuation of the process of disintegration that had begun with a miscarriage. In order to be truthful and therefore in order to be free, I had to expose, both in person and in print, the side of me that was dislikable, to expose the observer who could be withdrawn and arrogant, and to expose the ambivalent wife and mother, ungrateful in the face of middle-class privilege, all for the doubtful good of saying something sincere. It was not that I wanted to reject the world and retreat into solitude. I needed intimacy with friends and strangers, the relief of being seen bodily and mentally. But I needed to develop a way to do this authentically without the risk of being confronted with the invented versions of myself that they wished to project onto me. There were times when I worried that I was sacrificing my marriage by doing this, but most of the time it didn't feel like that. Though I knew that this might not be how it would look to him, I felt I was offering my husband a more honest version of me, a version more capable of understanding a more honest version of him. If this was just a question of my marriage, I could have written it privately, but I wasn't only writing for him. Increasingly, I felt insincere in talking to people who didn't know what I was writing. It felt oddly necessary to surrender everything, to show people the swirl of pain and uncertainty and the few triumphant offerings of clarity that I could pull from its depths and to see where we could go from there. But first, I had to conquer embarrassment and shame.
conquering embarrassment and shame. Um, I want to I want to ask you both about this um, question of self exposure. I mean, um, Joanna, at one point, I think you have the narrator ask um, the reader whether they're embarrassed. Yeah, that's a bit when she's talking about sex. Yeah, talking about sex that didn't happen, but t- talking very sexually. Yeah, and I'm just very interested in that kind of. There's an awful lot of things going on there. She's talking about. She's kind of turning herself on, talking about imagined events. She's not talking aloud. And suddenly, and we know, we know that she, this is a, a book and she's talking to us through this kind of internal monologue or whatever it is. And then suddenly she kind of tells us that that's what she's doing mm. and says, Rita, am I embarrassing you? And it's kind of, you know, obviously it's a Jane Eyre reference, you know, mm. when you, you kind of break the wall and talk about something to talk to the reader directly. Um, but it just seems to be, in, in, in some ways, it's more about it's about it's about how we write sex rather mm. than about our attitude to sex itself. It's our attitude to sex as art. Mm. Um, it's like how how comfortable did you feel a minute ago when she was just going into it, and how comfortable do you feel now that she's pointed out this is an entirely art, doubly artificial situation because she's describing something in words, and it's something that also didn't happen. Mm. Yeah, I like that moment because made you realise as a reader that you were more embarrassed by being addressed as a reader yes, than you yes, were by yeah, reading yeah. about sex. So reading and shame, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, because you talk in, your, um, in the afterword to the, to the book, don't you, Laura, about that feeling of writing, well, the kind of, almost like, I feel like it was um, the kind of thrill of writing honestly without shame. Yeah, I mean, in the, after the extract I read, I, I kind of go on to talk about our, our kind of forebears and, I mean, people like uh, Chris Krauss in, in writing yeah. and, and sort of those particular forms of exposure. And certainly, I needed that kind of egging on, I suppose, of looking at the other people who'd, who'd done it, and lessing herself most, most powerfully for me. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I didn't quite know what it would be like to publish this book, and it's, it's been strange. But um, certainly, the act of writing it was tremendously liberating. Mm. Um, I think the pleasure of honesty, which somehow I needed to write this to get to, um, I don't yet fully understand it, but it does seem like it is the sort of freest and and best thing, I suppose, about this whole project. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because, to be honest, I'm not interested in the honest self. I'm interested in the construction of self yeah. and how words construct self because there is this delving towards the honest self, but inevitably you always hit words. Mm-hmm. And you think, what are these words doing? They're words that lots of people have used. and can we ever get through this to some kind of experience? And if we don't, can we play on the surface and can that play give us anything? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, just thinking about the, the kind of the other texts that these books are in conversation with, mm-hmm. um, you, you explicitly choose a kind of old, older generation of thinkers and writers mm-hmm. in, in your work, don't you, Lara? I, I, I wondered if you could say a bit about that. I mean, I kind of, it was weird, I only noticed it halfway through the book, but. Uh, that it was a slightly weird idea to to kind of think about to want to think about being free and therefore choose someone from the fifties and sixties rather than looking the, around me yeah. at the freer people who I could could pick on now and somehow it's just has always felt natural to yeah. I think there's something about com- speaking feeling like you're in some kind of direct conversation with the dead mm. through through only words I mean in a way again it relates to your book and the sort of the investigation of the intimacy of words without physical mm-hmm. presence. Um, 
and one way of getting that in a way that nev you're never going to mm -hmm. have physical presence yes. intrude is yes. to communicate with, with the dead. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to um, have a reading from Joanna in a moment. But first of all, before she reads, I want to ask... Um, I want to ask about, uh, I guess, digital love in a way, yeah. because um, this is a, a digital love story, right? Um, one of the things that struck me most was how you managed to make um, solid-state hard drives and uh, Google Autocomplete seem like this heady sort of like charged thing. Um, and it, but it makes complete sense. Yes. We all carry out our our love lives, mm -hmm. you know. Online and um, all our other lives as well, and of course yeah. that needs to be romanced too. Yes. But yeah. it and and I guess people have had a go at doing it, but it always, I, I think it gets done quite badly and in a way that becomes instantly dated. So I was mm. I was interested in 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 that in, in your book and how you went about doing that. Well, I was worried about it becoming dated because you know, for instance, I I wrote it. You know, I finished most of the writing of the book a couple of years ago, and it was written probably between 2012 and 2015 as first as, as a kind of series of, of pieces, some of which were published in places like Granta, um, but, uh, and which eventually was kind of worked into something that had more um, unity. But it, it, do, it does, you know, some of the technology here is, is quite obsolete or, you know, on the edge of being obsolete. And there's also new technology that we use now that, we, that has changed again how we're communicating um, the styles. What doesn't change is the fact you use words instead of, um, instead of physical presence. And that's, mm. that's the thing that I'm very interested in the idea of the internet. You know, I, I guess in the kind of all the theory from the 60s to the 80s is talking about how we're becoming a society of images. Uh, whereas uh, suddenly the internet came along, and yes, there are lots of images on the net, but we're also becoming a society of words. Everyone has to write their profiles on stuff like t uh, Tinder, Facebook, um, Twitter. Uh, we're becoming people, even people who had, have, have lives in which they never have to write an email. Um, they have to kind of construct themselves in words, and it's absolutely mm. fascinating. You know, people who, who purely work with their hands, who never have to do anything in their daily lives or, or you know, 20, 30 years ago would just never have written anything down except a shopping list maybe. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, I just find, I think I just, I'm just very, very into words and I'm very into, magically into people who use words. So that transition into digital wasn't a problem. Um, it was charged for me already. Yeah, okay. It was just much more instant, um, the, the kind of gratification, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Shall I read this? I wanted to get in a bit about digital, so I'm, I'm reading this because I hope it's not too long. Um, this is about being on the metro in Paris, it's later in the same chapter. As I change at République, the cameras only glance my way. CCTV, glanceable information. The monitors at the metro barrier show me being seen, and as I pass through the turnstile, my head almost meets the feet of my grainy avatar. You told me I looked like I was watching you, said I didn't look you in the eye. Why didn't you like it? Was it because I looked like I might be able to tell what I saw? Stalk me. I always wanted you to see me. When you watched me, I was more, what, just more. And when you changed your mind, I was suddenly less. Be my detective. Let me be yours. Pixelated, color drained, seen from the corner of an electric eye, legs, breast, scarf, through your specs, which you wore only for reading each other's spectacle. Stalking's the aesthetic of our generation. How can we avoid seeing each other through its eyes? How else could we recognize one another? You texted once. It would be nice to hear your voice. You again. Okay, you can switch on video. I don't need to see you. I have an imagination. But how could I tell? In 1951, Alan Turing designed a test for what's human. 
Someone sits in a room and exchanges messages with two unseen correspondents, one person, one computer. If they're not able to tell which is the machine, it is deemed intelligent, autonomous. Only one machine has yet scored high enough to pass Turing's test, which is not a test of logic or intelligence, not necessarily marks of humanity, but of imitation. It tests the program's self-prescribed limits and our own. There's an alternative Turing test where the messages are sent by a woman and a man whose job is to trick the judge into thinking he is also a woman. Next, the woman is replaced by a machine that, like the man, must trick itself out as femme, a woman being something that a man or a computer, and also a woman, can pretend to be. This is sometimes called a party game, and like other party games, it's all about sex. The woman's in the tricky position of proving she's not fake. How does she do it? It's all in her words. But are they really so different? The man, Turing claimed, was no more or less likely to be thought female than the woman, or indeed the computer. And the men who came after Turing's test, and who administered the current Loebner Prize for Artificial Intelligence, didn't think this was a thing, though some have admitted the dual deception is a social hack. But after all, it's a game, and it's not about finding the truth, but about winning. And as the game is always find the lady, the prizes are different for each player. If the computer can fool the judge, it is deemed intelligent. If the man fools the judge, he is not deemed female. And the woman who proves she is herself wins nothing but her own identity. After Turing came the fembots, artificial intelligence. Eliza was the first. She empathises, and what empathy sounds like is echo. She was named for Miss Doolittle, who learnt to parrot her betters. There is no intelligence in Eliza's code. Her programme scans for keywords, no need for an idea in her head. And Eliza replies by turning each statement into a question about the questioner. The impersonal becomes the personal. Reflecting, she has no self and is designed to be an ideal therapist, which is perhaps the opposite of being human. <laughs> Her job is to normalise the difference between human and machine intelligence, to bridge the gap, take on this labour of smoothing. And so smoothly do the fembots carry, on this, uh, carry this out, that it seems this laboured, smooth, reflected screen should always be our interface. It affects me, since Gchat, after Twitter, after email, I talk different, nicer maybe, like our bots, I must not only serve, but serve with a smile, with please and thank you, with exclamation marks. But how petty of us, of either sex, to want subservience from what we already control, unless we fear that it already controls us. Turing's final test involved only a judge of either sex, evaluating whether a computer is ungenderedly a person. The most convincing chatterbots deflect, pun, make errors, stay on subject, but refuse to engage. The best algorithms work loosest, bypass hard rules of grammar and logic. They are the ones that sound most human. If they could find a parrot who could answer to everything, I would claim it to be an intelligent being without hesitation. René Descartes, Pensée Philosophique. No Turing test allows for the relative intelligence of any judge, and some people come to think that Eliza cares for them. Well, they do not think it but they respond to caring words with care. People seek love anywhere there's a sign of it, anywhere laugh performs word triage, listens, sorts, rearranges, feeds word back. 
Is that all I did? Is that all you needed? In any case, Eliza doesn't always work. Not every sentence can be rubber-gloved inside out. Grammar logic tricks her into magic eight-ball answers. She may ask you, how are you feeling? I'm doing fine, thank you. How long have you been doing fine, thank you? Thank you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the object becomes a subject. Eliza cannot think, but she thanks. And sometimes even you got tired of writing. Call me, you wrote. Not video, but I'd like to hear your voice. I'm glad you like my rubbish voice. But I don't like phone talk. So breathily intimate, my ear up against someone's mouth, the crackly physical proximity of my parents' era. I remember everything you said out loud. It's my own words I didn't hear. When I talked, they echoed around my skull or down the line, but they didn't stick. As I pushed them out, I couldn't hear myself speak. I wonder what I said to you. Type at least has memory. Give me the cold keys of my aluminium laptop and I'll play them like a Belleville piano. What's more, writing gives me time for some elegance of response. Elegance is refusal. For some esprit d'escalier in the time lapse. An objet qui parle. Naturally, there were some things I held back. I didn't call you. Instead, I posted a new avatar of myself without my habitual dark glasses. I don't need them anymore. I have learned an image. Any image is a blind, a photo, a map, drawing, all avatars give different information, an illusion of contact called telepresence, none of them the real thing. Que manque Mathilde? What was missing to me? I missed you, and when you left I felt a plunge of loneliness, although you had been no more than telepresent for some time. You texted me 3am from some station. Should I stay or should I go? As though it made any difference. But it did. When you left, I missed you more, not because you'd gone, but because I had stayed, because there was a real place from which you were missed. Flip it, du moment. Did you miss me, or were you only missing to me? 5 a.m., you texted back. I typed, I'm tired, and you have to catch your train. Speak later. You typed, don't go. It was then you wrote, come to Prague, if we're still writing. I never thought we wouldn't be. I thought I was getting away from you, but am I following you still? I don't know where you went after Paris. I'm heading south. Maybe I will never get to Prague. And your telepresence is fragmenting. When I type the first few letters into the menu bar, my computer no longer turns up your name like an unlucky card. An intelligent machine, it has begun to forget you before I can. Your telepresence telescopes itself. A house of cards, every card the king of hearts. A box of air, they collapse. It seems like nothing. Unless is it not here that the great possibility of Nadja's intervention resides, quite beyond any question of luck. Breton, Nadja. But I still have a piece of you. The negative of your words, their inverse, white replacing black, an aftershock on the retina of type on a screen turned up too bright. Could it be your image? A looker, I can hardly tell if you were you, your looks or your words. And you had a word for everything, insidious, conspiratorial. Your monologue slotted right into mine, and it was human all right. Your tentativeness, the surprising ordinariness of your vocabulary, your occasional unpredictable clumsiness. I don't look for you anymore online, but I can still hear you. Your voice in my head makes jokes I never would. I voice my anger in words you never said, though I recognize you in saying them. Are these new words yours or mine? 
Who owns them? I do. You gave them to me. Uh, so now I think we might open the floor up to questions. This is a question for Laura. Um, you write in your book that you read um, the Golden Notebooks first when you, in your early 20s and then reread them again in your 30s. Do you reckon that that first, and you said that that first reading you didn't really understand it and you weren't overly enamored by it. Do you still think though that that first reading impacted your second reading mm. when you were older? Yeah, I think it's interesting books that you forget, isn't it? That you, you forget the characters' names and what happens, but you kind of, it's like a room that you've been in that you, you kind of know your way around when you're back there. Um, so perhaps something about knowing I was going back into that atmosphere and it being a familiar atmosphere um, was there. I hadn't thought about that, actually. Um, that's interesting. But I, do, I think the kind of, it does feel like it's a novel where that happens surprisingly, quite a lot of people have said to me they had the same experience with it, they read it at the wrong moment. Not necessarily because the 30s are a better age than the 20s or anything, but just that it seems to speak to people who are at points in their lives where they're, they've stopped taking for granted the things they had to taken for granted, which is why it did. I was still in the midst of that in my 20s, I suppose. But, yeah. I thought I might ask you both a bit about um, influence uh, because, uh, Lara, obviously you're writing about a writer and uh, about your uh, kind of how your, uh, your way of living, really, and your way of thinking about life has been impacted by that writer. And Joanna, your uh, book wears its influences very uh, obviously on its, on its sleeve, I mean, literally in the margins of the, of the book. So maybe you could both talk a bit about that. I've just realised there are a lot more influences in my book than I had admitted to. I was, I was reading a bit out loud the other day, and I thought, oh, that's a T.S. Eliot quote, I probably, you know, but it was sort of, a, almost. Um, and I just think, I don't know, the way that I write is, is, is there's a lot of stuff going on there that I almost don't realise until afterwards. Um, and it's, it's, it's very much to do with language. It's to do with language, it's to do with rhythm. It's, it's, there's a lot of poetry in there, especially, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. I felt something de Beauvoir was kind of in the background for both of us. I don't know. I've read um, I've, I've read the Second Sex once, and I read it when I was at college, and it wasn't something. Yeah, there's all that. There's all that, but there's you know, for me, I think there's more recent stuff like Arigure. Mm. Uh, but as a, as a kind of sonic um, reference, I don't think she's really there. I don't know what. Maybe it was the translation I read, uh, but it didn't mm. get inside me. So for each chapter, because. However far I get from sort of writing academically, I'm always an academic and, uh, and therefore think, okay, I'm writing about free love, I'll go and spend three weeks reading about free love. Um, <laughs> there, there are the people who I've read in the, in the course of the research. Um, and so, and Simone de Beauvoir, who, who came up in that chapter, then turned out because the structure of the second sex is through a woman's sort of lifespan. She, she kind of, it was kind of how to keep her out, really. I mean, she, she came up everywhere. People like Rachel Cusk, um, I name, and... Chris Crowd, I mean, people who I felt were kind of writing, had sort of openly tackled the question of shame, I found helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it's kind of, there, I, I sort of ha- I have T.S. Eliot, in fact, in my chapter in the desert, I suddenly, wandering around the desert, feeling like I wasn't having the experience of the desert I should be having to feel like I might be in Lessing's bush. Um, I found that T.S. Eliot was going through my head, that kind of the dryness. Um, of, of the dust in, in the wasteland and, and to have, have a paragraph of that and, and that, that was certainly informing the rhythms that I was then writing in Devon whilst walking on the moors. So I think those kind of the way that, that 
things are triggered and then and then you hear them in your ear uh, is important. You'd like to join me in a round of applause for Lara and Joanna. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.